Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Our pleasures were simple. They included survival. Is a quote from Dwight Eisenhower, the 34th President of the United States of America and the first Supreme Allied Commander. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today as our guest, despite being a successful leader on multiple fronts, considers surviving as his greatest achievement. Our guest is Richard Goiter, Chairman of Woodside Petroleum, Qantas, and the AFL Commission. Richard was previously the Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of West Farmers, one of Australia's largest companies. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies, and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Richard talks about his experiences, from growing up in rural Australia to becoming the CEO of one of Australia's largest organisations. He looks back at the major projects he took on as a business leader and reminds us that success can be achieved by having the right people around you. Risk is everywhere and we must be prepared to take it on. So sit back and enjoy. It's all about survival. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. You grew up on a farm. Yeah, I grew up in the great southern of Western Australia. I was actually born in a little town called Tambula. I was one of the probably the few white Anglo-Saxons born in Tambula. Most of the people born there were Indigenous. Okay. My parents farmed, and uh, I had a wonderful upbringing. Growing up on a farm, I think, Teaches you a bit of resilience, teaches you yeah. a few facts of life, and uh, yeah, I had a, had a great time. You're still involved in farming? Well, I decided at about the age of 10 that I didn't want to farm because it seemed to me there was too much reliance on external factors, commodity prices, climate. So I worked at school and went and did other things, and then maybe 10 years ago, just post the global financial crisis, yeah. um, uh, Janine and I, my wife and I, decided that we'd invest back in farming. So we've now got a reasonable-sized farm northeast of Perth, which is fantastic. Now, you um, progressed and studied commerce. Any, any reason why commerce? It's just, it's just the basic principles of business, which you may have learned on the farm? Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, different times back then. I finished school in 1977 and then had a year off, went overseas, did a Rotary Exchange student for a year in, in the US. And in those days, at university, there were fewer degrees, um, fewer options in the degrees. And I didn't. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but commerce was a was a good meal ticket, and so I I did that degree, and that enabled me to to sort of get going into business and build a career in finance. Yeah, I I, I was always reasonably good, although I didn't like it on on the math side of things. So, mm-hmm. 
and have always been interested in finance and the theory of finance and the, the reality of finance. So, yeah. And you ultimately joined this company called West Farmers. So for our audience out there, what is West Farmers? Because it's incredibly unique. Yeah, so West Farmers was actually formed in 1914 as a farmers cooperative in Western Australia, then listed in 1984. And that was in itself extraordinary to go from a farmers cooperative to a listed company and a significant company on the ASX, obviously a top 10 company, conglomerate with a very simple objective of providing shareholders with a satisfactory return. And Although that's simple in words, that's defined financially. And West Farmers has been able to be a conglomerate. It was a wonderful business to be associated with because really good people, different businesses, very clear objective. And I had a lot of fun at West Farmers. So Richard, what is the ethos of of a conglomerate? Well, I, I used to describe West Farmers as financially focused with a heart. And so... The financial focus means you know you're a listed company. You've got yep. shareholders investing. Yep. Uh, they expect you to make a return on their investment, mm-hmm. and so we could be pretty dispassionate about the businesses we're involved in. But if you understand sustainability, sustainability in its broadest context is ensuring that you actually make profits, generate profits in a way that creates value for all your stakeholders, not just your shareholders, but your employees, your customers, your suppliers, the communities in which you operate. And I think that's been the ethos of West Farmers over many years. So West Farmers has got a great reputation as a company, one, because it's performed well on the ASX over more than 30 years, but also because it's got a heart, you know, whether it's post-floods or post-traumas, fires, whatever, West Farmers and West Farmers businesses like Bunnings and others yep. uh, have been at the forefront of supporting communities. And you know, West Farmers has been a significant contributor to the arts in Western Australia. So a whole lot of things like that. West, so West Farmers is acknowledged as the shareholders have generally loved the company because it provided great returns, yep. but the community has also been very supportive of it because it's it's got this heart. But ultimately, it's an investment house in many regards, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so we With were- With a heart in, in your yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we always said that any business in West Farmers was for sale if it was worth more to someone else than it was to the shareholders of West Farmers. But so. it goes against the trend of a lot of Australian thinking when you think about most corporates don't diversify, do they? So this is this is a business which specialises in multi-corporations, multi-stock, multi-multi-product. Yeah, but I'd say it specialised mostly in financial discipline. Yeah, okay. And, you know, people say- there's and all business schools, you know, have these different theories. There's more That's risk right. in going outside your core business. Well, yes. we would actually have argued that, and some of my experiences may reinforce this, that there's more risk in going outside your geography, for example, than going into a new business, right. particularly if you've got some skills leverageable across different businesses. So, you know, we always took steps. If it didn't work, you'd retreat and go and try something else. But yeah, it's worked pretty well over the years for, for West Farmers. Okay. You were a CFO there for some time before you made the move to CEO. Yeah. How, how did you find the transition? Because it is a big step. Oh, it's a huge step. So I was lucky enough to run a business, run the rural services division in West Farmers, which was a wonderful job. And then Mike Cheney asked me to become finance director. In West Farmers, that's a broader role than just a CFO. You know, I had insurance business reporting into me and so great role that gave me really good insight across all the businesses and to all the people in the group. And I remember, you know, six months in of being CEO, I thought, oh, this is not too bad. You know, this is, everyone said this is a big step up and it could be lonely. And six months in, I'm thinking, this is, oh, this is. Oh, you're taking your stride, aren't you? Yeah, it's just going, okay. And then something happens and whack. And you think, oh my goodness. And 
um, one of the things about being CEO, you know, as CFO, I used to be able to go into the to Mike Cheney, the CEO's office, and say, "Mike, got this problem. Here's a few answers. Yep. Here's a few responses. Over to you." Yep. <laughs> one of the things you realise when you're CEO, it's it's over to you, and not not often, but sometimes you got to make calls, yep. and sometimes you're on your own a bit when you make those calls. And the thing I think most people don't get about being CEO is the constancy. You live and breathe the role, um, not 24-7, but it's just constant. Um, yeah. So holidays aren't real holidays. Time with family is difficult to sort of separate yourself from the business. And to me, that's the most demanding thing about it is the absolute constancy of the role and, and the need to be on your game, the need to uh, to make sure that people can see that you look like you, you're across things and in control, even though there might be a heck of a lot going on, like you know, global financial crisis and yep. things like that. So, it is a, it's no doubt, it's a big step up. So you faced some pretty challenging times. What were some of the challenging stories you want to share? Oh yeah, I mean, there were you know our own missteps. You know, from time to time, you you pay too much for an asset, you employ the wrong person to do a role. You know that none of us is perfect, and um, you know, I could, I've got a long list of things that. If I had my time again, I'd do differently. Um, probably the bit most significant challenge, though, was the global financial crisis mm-hmm. um, and the flow-on effects of that, which was confidence, which were freeze of liquidity for yeah. a period of time, great uncertainty in the world at a time when we'd made a significant investment in coals. Yeah. Um, so you know, we had a big task internally to integrate these businesses into the group, improve them, maintain a healthy balance sheet and and keep the confidence of the market. So that was challenging, yeah. as actually was the year we acquired Coles, which is 2007. Yeah, that was just a full-on project for that year, well, basically. Do you, want, do you want to talk us through that? Because that's that was a bold initiative against a lot of a lot of critics. Yeah, well, one of our values, you know, we had four core values in West Farmers Integrity, not negotiable. Accountability, which means, you know, in business, people want accountability and accountability means, you know, we want you to accept it. There are consequences. There are rewards for good performance and consequences for poor performance. Openness, which means hopefully bad news travels faster than good news, which goes to the whole cultural thing we talk about in Australia at the moment. Yes. And then the the last one we added was boldness. And Rob Scott may have changed that a bit, but basically what that meant was don't become so risk averse that you're afraid to make decisions. And I've seen that in other businesses and I think you can see that in different parts of the economy at yes, the moment. I agree. And business is about taking risk. And in you know West Farmers we we took calculated risks. Um, so Coles was bold but Can I just ask you on that? When do you take the risk? When does when is it such that the numbers or what's the triggering point for an investment house like yourself to make the call we're in? Yeah, l- let me take a step back. The previous year, I took over CI in two thousand and five. In two thousand and six, we had an opportunity to acquire a business in the industrial space, and I had this sort of rosy view that you walked with your executive team in lockstep and everyone would be together. And bottom line was this opportunity we we let slip because of paralysis by analysis because I had one or two people on my team who really didn't want to do this for various reasons. And we missed an opportunity by being too slow and too risk-averse. So that was a pretty good lesson as we go into 2007. Mm. And the Coles board... 
put this ownership review process in place. And they were good days, 2007 as well. They were good days. Yeah. And I thought then, gee, this is an opportunity to acquire a business that is clearly underperforming when you compare it to its major competitor, Woolworths, mm. that had a network of stores that was reasonably comparable. And I think for most people in the market thought was an opportunity to, to grow. And and we were really the only Australian company that could do this. So, you know, the whole Coles ownership process started because KKR and other private equity groups right. got involved. One of the things we've always been good at is finding the right people to, to run businesses, bring them into the group, let them, you know, the, the group sort of protect the business, provide the funding, provide the governance processes and the like so that you can actually get on and run it. Okay. So... Uh, you know, we, we rightly or wrongly had a fair degree of self-confidence that we could improve the business. Mm -hmm. And you don't often get an opportunity to acquire a business that potentially gives you 10 years of, of growth. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the opportunity that, that Coles was. Now, people said at the time, Gee, you're, uh, you bet the company on this. I, I didn't ever believe that we bet the company because it's a very good asset, yeah. not just supermarkets, but Kmart and Target and, and liquor and other things. Yes. In hindsight, I probably bet my career on it. Yeah, agreed. Uh, but I was probably too naive at the time to, to really know that. So, yeah, would I have done it five years later? I'm not sure, but, um, I'm glad we did. And, uh, yeah, because I think, we got a very good outcome. The business is materially improved. Good outcomes for shareholders. Were the West Farm shareholders happy? Yeah. There were always some who said, gee, you overpaid. You know, there was $19 billion. The vast majority of that, 15 or 16, I think, was our, was our own shares. But if on any measure, we outperformed the ASX over that time. And uh, I, you know, the value West Farmers is now has just recently sold at 5% for a billion dollars. Mm. Uh, the, you know, there's still Kmart and Officeworks and Absolutely. Target in the West Farmers portfolio. Yep. We kept a, a business in Australian hands. We kept 130-odd thousand or more employees employed and grew employment. Uh, so I, I think it was a good thing to do and um, I think, you know, time's proven that. Okay, what's what were the key learnings during the period of time you you held Coles? Uh, a few things. Balance sheet is vital. So, you know, we um, we ended up with this period in early two thousand and nine where we needed to raise some equity. Yep, I remember because that. liquidity markets had effectively dried up. I would still have people who were working with with me in Treasury at the time saying you didn't need to do it, but the market really forced us into raising equity at what was a pretty low price. Those shareholders, and it was most shareholders in West Farmers who took up the opportunity, probably the, one of the best investments they've ever made. So number one rule in business is never run out of cash and make sure your balance sheet is strong. So that's one. And the second one is quality of people. You know, we bought and we were able back then, again, that time frame, we were able to bring in a team of people, Ian McLeod, John Dirk and Stuart Machen, Archie Norman as an advisor, yeah, or, or more on a private equity type remuneration arrangement than anything. Mm -hmm. So we're able to attract, uh, we thought, global best talent in to come and run this business, which was probably the most exciting challenge in retailing in the world at the time. And they were an incredible team, and you know worked their backsides off to to turn this business around and. 
you know, there's nothing quite like in business seeing the gauge start moving your way. And in Coles, it was same store sales. There were a few things. And that, that was great fun. And and then in Kmart, you know, we bought Guy Russo. That's into right. Yeah, you know, as a guy who started life as a hamburger flipper yeah. at McDonald's. You know, sometimes as a CEO, you've, you've got to back your instincts. And Guy and I had had a conversation about potentially coming and running Kmart. I brought him down from Hong Kong to have a conversation in my office. I had our head of human resources in the office. And sometimes in in interviews with people, after five or ten minutes, you think, this isn't going to go anywhere and I, na- I need to be polite for the next 30 minutes and then <laughs> exit. <laughs> this was a meeting where I thought after 10 minutes, I'm not letting him out of my office until I've got him right? signed up. He's a star guy. And uh, <laughs> Chris Ryan, who is head of HR at the moment, when I said, you know, okay, guy, let's talk about terms. But that's not how HR works. And Chris has gone, my goodness, what are you doing? But I sort of got after an hour and a half, an in-principle agreement with Guy. And Guy and then Ian Bailey and others were you know, phenomenal yep. leaders of that business, taking something that uh, you're learning your lesson, the microphone's always on. I once described Kmart as a dog of a business. Yeah, agree. Uh, the team always reminded me of that, turning that business into something that's worth you know, probably closer to $10 billion now. So quality of people. For those out there listening, our audience are all, you know, closely uh, affiliated to business. How does what's the rhythm between the Coles team and the West Farmers team? When do you intervene? What and what do you hold accountable? Yeah, that's a great question because the very nature of some highly successful executives is that they are driven. Yeah, they don't want to be hindered by bureaucracy or. And one of the temptations in business is to surround yourself with people who are compliant. And I think one of the things in West Farmers is we enabled people, as long as they held the values, in other words, as long as they had integrity yes, and they held our values, we enabled people to get on with things, even though sometimes it might, as CEO, you might think, oh, you know, I would, I would do it differently or I might do it a different way. And Mike Cheney said when Joe Boris, who ran Bunnings, retired at Joe's farewell, Mike said, one of the best things I ever did was not fire Joe because there were so many times I was tempted to. Because right? not because he did bad things. In fact, Joe was the most wonderful, you know, CEO of Bunnings before Peter Davis and John Gillum. It was just that Joe pushed, you know, and would sometimes say to the head office, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You know, it was that sort of relationship. And we had that a bit with Coles, but we also had, you know, we've had that. I had that with most of the businesses from West Farmers because people, there was an independence. Um, but the rhythm was pretty clear. Uh, bi-monthly board meetings, detailed okay. board papers, a strong governance process, accountability in terms of results, yeah. but also, you know, we didn't we didn't get everything right, but um, you know, reasonable monitoring of other factors in a business that, you know, customer satisfaction, how your suppliers are going, those sort of things. So there was a pretty good rhythm. Archie Norman yeah. uh, was worth his weight in gold as yeah. an advisor, not just to West Farmers, but to me personally. Okay. Um, because he was the sort of person who could walk into any coal supermarket yeah. anywhere and know whether things were on track or not. So the rhythm was Pretty good, and I, and I at the end of the day, I had very good relationships with all of those people. Actually, just in that, what was Archie's role? Was it to advise you, or was it to advise Coles team? Because that can yeah. be a tricky. That can be a tricky role to play, actually. Yeah, it was. So he was 
he was an advisor to the West Farmers Board. Yep. Uh, and then he was an advisor to Coles, but I was chairman of Coles. Yes. Uh, so th- it was in that capacity, mode, uh, capacity mm-hmm. but he would, you know, he came out for a while. He was coming out probably six times a year into the mm. business um, for a, a week, um, you know, every, every time. In looking at stores, sitting down with various people in the business, getting a really good comprehension of what was going on. He he was, as I said, invaluable. So it's all down to the people? People say to me, what's the role of CEO? I would say set direction so that the organisation knows where you're going. And that sounds simple, but it needs to be clear and concise. The second one is surround yourself with great people. And my theory has always been put people around you who are better than you because they're going to lift the performance. And the third one is set and live the standards. And so the people side of it's incredibly important, I think. Setting the direction, how do you communicate that? A simple message is is best. And, you know, so I, as I said, West Farmers' objective when it listed in 84 was to provide shareholders with a satisfactory return. Mm-hmm. That's not that inspiring a message. No, I agree. <laughs> so I, you know, and it's, each individual leader does his or her own thing on that. So I, I used to say we're, we're about creating value for all our stakeholders, which is, I said earlier, employees, shareholders, yep. customers. And then you can define what that means. And as I said, a conglomerate financial focus with a heart. But then each business had its own clear direction. And you know, there's very been very few better businesses in Australia in the last 20 years than Bunnings. That's right. And that the message about Bunnings and customer service and delighting the customer and working with communities has been a cr- critical part of that business. And you know, people love working with Bunnings, either as employees or as suppliers or or whatever. So getting that simple message understood by by teams is incredibly important. Do you follow the Agenti principles? Yeah, so we did um, pretty religiously in West Farmers because it was a way of getting financial metrics around a whole lot of different businesses. Mm. Now, I go into businesses like Woodside and Qantas now, and they have different planning processes, although Woodside is fairly closely aligned. But simplistically, Agenti is about, well, what – What's your business look like? What's the what's the business environment like? What's the competitive environment like? What are your strategies? And when you work all that together, can you make a decent return mm. on the invested capital in the business? So it's it's sort of pretty simple, but important because you know everyone wants to be involved in strategy. Yes. Uh, yeah. And strategy is fine as long as ultimately the strategy is going to deliver outcomes that. <laughs> are going to be okay for the people who invest the money. What were the learnings from the move to the UK with Bunnings? It's a good question. So mm. my learnings on that would be, you know, so we we did a whole lot of evaluation. We walked yeah. miles in, you know, kilometres in Australia, miles in London, around stores. We did a lot of homework on this. And, you know, faced with the same information, I'd do the same thing again. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, uh, you know, not everything works out as you intend. I, I think the lessons would be that we tried to move the business too quickly from where it was, home base from what it was, which we didn't like because it had some aspects of home improvement that we thought were too soft. 
we thought we'd move out of that quickly. We'd get into much more of a Bunnings-type product range rapidly. Okay. And we thought that we needed to make some people decisions and we yeah. needed to do that quickly. Yeah, okay. And we've done that in the past. We did that when Bunnings and when West Farmers acquired BBC Hardware. We did that in the rural business when we acquired IAMA many years ago. In, in Australia, we've done that sort of thing in the past and it had been successful. In the UK, when we did it, we left some customers behind because they became confused about what the offer was. And before we could get good people into the business, we lost the capability in the business. So those two things, I think, went, went against us. And so probably moving too fast on a number of fronts before really understanding some of those sort of cultural aspects of the business was um, one of the one of the issues but you know it, it just goes to show that as I said earlier there is there is material risk in going into new geographies you know we clearly didn't understand those risks as well as we might have but you've got to take a risk as you said earlier yeah. don't you yeah and you know I look at Bunnings if there was a team in West farmers that had earned the right to expand yeah. and grow, and go somewhere, it was the Bunnings team. Our biggest risk we felt at the time was losing focus in Australia while we tried to do this in the UK. Uh, But that didn't, you know, over the time we had the investment in the UK and that cost shareholders a significant amount of money. Mm. But in the meantime, the the value of the Australian business grew by more. Yeah, right. So, So it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, you know, it was a it was a, a learning thing. It was a poor investment, but the Bunnings, the whole Bunnings thing, actually was more valuable at the end of the start. And and I think you all we all learn from these things. Now, Richard, you once said, "Make sure it's something you want to do." Yeah, don't do it because you think it's the next logical step. You want to talk us through that? Well, that's being a, a non-executive director of a listed company. Okay, uh, and. This is a broad-ranging and a topic we could talk about for a long time. Mm. But I don't... But critical in this country at the moment. Yeah, I don't think it is a logical step for executives to say, okay, I'm retiring now, I'm going to become a non-executive director. Because um, the role of a non-executive has changed, I think, dramatically over 20 years and and even over the last 10 years and Mm. probably the last five. And I think... Post Hain and other things, it continues to change. And so does the emphasis, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. So the responsibilities are significant. The liabilities liabilities are significant. And it can be quite frustrating if you're not prepared for it to go from being the decision maker and the doer to being one of a group of people around the table whose primary responsibility is governance hiring and firing CEOs, and actually being able to step back while still having enough understanding of a business to be able to ask the right questions and challenge and those sort of things. So for some people, it's just not right yeah. um, because they, they want to be they want to have hands on the steering wheel and be driving. Yep. For other people, it's not right because, you know, it's a different working environment. You're part of a team as a board, so while you have individual rights and responsibilities, you're also a collective. Uh, so it's to me, it's just people need to think through why why you'd want to do it. Um, and, and from my point of view, and I've thought about it pretty deeply, I had a great mentor, which we can talk about in a minute, mm. but 
Chris Bartland. Chris, in my last year or so at West Farmers, was really strong on saying to me, what are your plans? What are you going to do? And he, he challenged and tested me a lot on this. And the reason I'm doing it is- Well, he could see, he could see that you're coming to the end of the run or- Yeah, well, he and I talked about that. So we, you know, the, the whole succession thing in West Farmers is well planned. Yeah. He also wanted me to make a conscious decision not to just roll into something. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm doing these roles in, in, in a non-executive capability is in the hope that I can add some value, create some value, as well as the personal stimulation of doing it. And, I, you know, it's oil and gas and aviation is fascinating and I have a passion for Australian football and there's a few other things I'm involved in. But I would not do these roles because I needed to do them. Yeah, okay. It would be a really bad outcome, I think, if you did that. Well, let me just take it back. So you're in full flight. You've done one of the, some of the biggest deals in the country. You're in one of the most successful uh, organizations in the country and you know, looked, looked upon from corporates around the world. Why did you call it a day? Well, I'd, it was 12 and a half years from go to woe. Yep. Um, and in reality, the three years of CFO, certainly the last two or 18 months, you know, I was CA designate. So, so it was a fairly long stint in, in a role, as I said, with constancy. So I had a couple of things on my mind. Firstly, having the right succession inside West Farmers. And, you know, I was delighted that Rob Scott was appointed CEO. I think Rob's doing a great job. So I desperately wanted to make sure that we were able to appoint someone internally. So mm-hmm. that that was part of the time frame. You always sort of want to go, you'd prefer to go out. On a high. On a high. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the Bunnings UK thing mucked that up a bit. But, but uh, uh, there was a moment in, so I retired in, at the AGM in 2017. Mm. And there was a moment in about October 2016, we'd had a pretty ordinary spring and it was a 28-degree day of Sunday and I was sitting in my study at home and I had about 2,500 pages of board papers to read for the following week. And I looked out the window and for the first time I thought to myself, do I want to still be doing this in another year's time or two years' time? And I think as soon as you ask yourself that question, (laughs) you've probably got the answer as well. Um, And I also really wanted to do the AFL chairman's Role yeah. uh, because I, you know, that was coming up, and I might have thought I could do it in conjunction being CEO, but the shareholders wouldn't have, and the shareholders probably would have been right. So a couple of things happened. So I been having conversations with my chairman at the time anyway, and and I just said, come on, we need to start firming up a a date on this. So that's what happened. Okay, with the success of West Farmers as a conglomerate model. Are you surprised that we don't have any more of those in Australia? No, because it's hard. Um, so I think over many years, West Farmers earned the right to do different things, you know, and so Rob's gone out and bought a shareholding in a lithium business. So I think you earn the right, but I think if Woodside turned around tomorrow and bought a retailer or a you know, construction business, the market would say, hang on, what what are you doing um so i'm i'm not because it's hard to do and it's west farm has been able because able to do it because it started small and it it grew and as it grew it made good returns and so people have sort of stuck with them through it got through the journey um but people would also say 
you know, the spin-off of Coles has created value. And so there's always this pressure on, you know, if you, if you do have diverse businesses, do you spin them off? I would argue that the, the structure in West Farmers has the way we operated businesses enabled different businesses to prosper within the group. Yes. Other theorists would say, no, you need to be separate. So it's interesting. Private equity, yep. if you look at private equity, they are doing fine yes. by having different businesses. Yep. And it's not much of a different model to West Farmers. The mm. only difference really is they often have a, a time frame over which they've got to exit their investment. And at West Farmers, we never had that time frame. But otherwise, it's a pretty similar model. Okay. So you made the transition from CEO to the directorship. Yeah. What's the first glance? What are you seeing? Because we started early on about your role at West Farmers was taking calculated risks. What we're hearing this day and age in the boardroom is anything being very risk averse. So how does someone like you who does, you know, come from that background settle into being a chair? Yeah, it's a great question because there's um, a lot of things now that you've got to be um, conscious of that organisations are adhering to and it's the list is getting longer. Yeah, uh, conscious of or paralysed by? Yeah. Well, if I ever felt paralysed by, I think I'd bail out, frankly. Okay. You know, there are – there's no doubt there's more dotting of I's and crossing of T's now at boards than there used to be. There's no doubt there's a much – bigger emphasis on audit and risk, on risk appetite, on all those sort of things. And frankly, if you get too caught up in that, you probably start scratching your head a bit. But but I've said to both of the listed boards I'm on that one of our roles is to facilitate the CEO and management team to take appropriate risk, to look to build the business over time, not to find reasons not to do things. I think it's very easy these days for boards to become too risk averse and it's easier not to do something than to to do something. And so, you know, both Woodside and Qantas have got material investments on the horizon at the moment. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Woodside Scarborough is a $11 billion US <laughs> investment in total. And, you know, Qantas obviously has Sunrise, which is billions of dollars in new aircraft. Yes. But both those investments, I think, potentially strategically incredibly important for the future of the business. So if you're risk averse, you're just going to say, no, we're not going to do it. You know, we'll just distribute any excess capital to shareholders. If you're helping to facilitate, you're finding ways to mitigate risk to give as much assurance as you can that you're going to provide good outcomes for all your stakeholders, particularly shareholders in the years to come. So I, I do think that's part of my role. Part of my role is to make sure that the board has an appropriate appetite for risk. Why did you choose those two boards, Richie? Timing was good. Woodside's West Australian-based. It's been an iconic company in West yes. Australia. One of the reasons that Woodside's been so attractive to me is, you know, we had energy in West Farmers, but this is much bigger in scale. So for me, oil and gas is a huge learning curve. And and that's great because that – and our first board meeting I went to, I sat next to one of the directors, Sarah Ryan, and she had this – page of acronyms for me and she said, I'll sit with you for as long as it takes you to start understanding some of these acronyms because they have so many. So getting to understand that, but being based in Perth, very good CEO and Peter Coleman, yes. um, lots of ticks, 
And Qantas, I wasn't going to do any more than one. And then the opportunity to join Qantas came up. And I actually said to the headhunter at the time, if there was any other business, I'd probably say no, but you know, I'm fascinated with aviation. Yeah, it's an iconic brand as well. Oh, it's the best brand. And so that's a you know, it's a phenomenal being involved with Qantas. Richard, you made an interesting choice going to both Qantas and Woodside because both those CEOs have got runs on the board. How do you play your role as chair to influence, guide, coach? What had, what is that your role in that in that case? Yeah, they're both. You know, Alan and Peter are, uh, I think, exceptional CEOs who understand their business, great work ethic, really good sets of values. And uh, you know, I've, frankly, I'm learning a bit from both of them as well. Uh, they've both been incredibly respectful of the role, and both been first class in their communication with me. And I'll, I'll give you an example. You know, if you, if you think about this year with Qantas, with bushfires, yeah. coronavirus, there's a lot going on. Mm. And Alan and I will have spoken almost every day this year. Part of it's Alan keeping me informed. Part of it is Alan testing me out on things, i.e. we're thinking about doing this. You know, we've had evacuation flights from... Wuhan and things like that. Yep. And I think that's helped build a relationship of respect both ways. And I think the combination, like a lot of things, the combination, the one plus one is equal to a bit more than two in a, a lot of cases. Yep. And similarly with Peter, you know, Peter, we had our full year results at Woodside, you know, just recently. Peter's doing roadshows. He's keeping me informed about what shareholders are thinking, particularly on significant investments. Mm. So there's a respect both ways. You know, I'll check in, knowing the challenge of being a CEO, I'll check in with them. We have a rhythm in terms of catching up, but I'll check in with them if I know things are going on because the roles can be lonely and I know that. Equally, I think they're respectful to make sure that I'm informed and appropriately that we're keeping the board informed on on other things as well. The, the challenge, frankly, is going to be the process of renewal, succession when that comes. Yeah, and both yeah. have been there for a while now. Yeah, they're both probably closer to the end than the beginning. Yeah. Both have got a way to go, but it's challenging to replace CEOs. But you know, we'll have processes going in both companies. We'll develop internal talent. And I think we'll be in good shape when when we have to make those decisions. In the boardroom for both organisations now, where is the time spent in regards to like a return on equity, shareholders, returns in values in comparison to the emphasis given to social responsibility? Yeah. Uh, you've got two interesting yeah, companies there covering both of that. Yeah, but it's 95-5. You know, the, okay. The social responsibility thing is important. Yeah. I, I've always said – Financial performance, sustainable financial performance is the foundation. If you don't have that, you don't have a future. You know, either the CEO or board get fired or the company gets taken over or or you fail. Mm-hmm. So you have to have that and you, and that's so that's having the right strategies, the right people, you know, a balance sheet. Those things are just fundamental. Mm-hmm. And I think if you lose sight of that, you're in strife. The social responsibility, I think, is now part of it. I did a speech last year to superannuation funds. And I said- Very influential. Hugely influential. I said, you turn up to meetings. So you have your investment people turn up to meetings with the CEOs of Woods on Qantas Mm. and portfolio managers. 
And then you have your ESG people turn up to meetings with me, the chairman. I said, but in your meetings with me, you are arguing, and I agree with you, that ESG is a component part of the business now, that sustainability, environmental issues, safety, all of those things are absolutely critical to the day-to-day running of a business, yet you're separating them out. And I think they're integrated now. So, you know, we have a discussion about investment around Scarborough, then that necessarily talks about the interaction with the Indigenous people up in the Burrup. It talks about mitigation of CO2 emissions from our operations. It talks about how we're going to have labour in Karatha, all of those things. So I, I, I think they're really entwined. So, you know, you can't make commercial decisions now, I think, without looking at broader implications around all of those sort of issues. I'm going to ask you to wear two hats. One hat as chairman of Woodside and one hat as an Australian. Cost of energy yeah. comes up in every, every day. Companies are going to the wall, Richard, as you know. Manufacturing in this country is just about over. Why are we getting it so wrong that us Australians are paying a fortune for energy? What's what's your perspective? Well, yeah, and we're an energy-rich country, yep. uh, so it's sort of mind-blowing in a in a in a yeah. way. Interestingly, we have a different outcome at the moment in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. So the the government some years ago got roundly criticised, but had a had a reservation policy. So now when when we are looking at developing, then there's a domestic reservation element of, of any development we do. And so gas is relatively cheaper on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast right. for industry. Now, of course, you know, it's, it's isolated and there's not big markets over there, so that's a bit irrelevant. Mm. Um, so I, I think there's been a failure over a fair bit of time on energy policy. Yep. And I think that's also linked to climate change, you know, policies around CO2 outcomes. You know, one thing business wants and needs is certainty to make investments. And if you don't have that, um, and we're all facing into it, Woodside's a hydrocarbon company, so Scarborough's a 30-year investment. So if we need regulatory certainty and support from our shareholders to make these investments, I think we sort of get bits right, but we probably – the probably needs to be a more holistic thing. We got very close with the with the NEG a couple of years ago. Politics are at play on this. There's always, you know, different incentives on the corporate side of things as well. You know, I hope we can build a sustainable energy policy in this country that actually does reduce costs for users, domestic and commercial users, but also has enough incentive for us to develop um, projects that are going to be important internationally, um, yeah. you know, whether they're LNG or otherwise. And do you think there's enough dialogue between business and the politicians? Yes, I, I think there's dialogue, there is. Is, but is there enough outcome? How's that? Well, I mean, you talk about environmental policy, yeah. energy policy. Where is it? Uh, the politics are hard, and and I, I, I'm in the camp that says it's easy to criticise politicians, but. Put yourself in their shoes occasionally. Uh, so I think industry has its own roles in this as well. So, you know, yep. I've said to the Woodside team, as we get closer to making final investment decisions on Scarborough, we need not only to have regulatory approvals from 
the federal and state governments, but we we need to make sure that they are going to be consistent over the life of these projects. And then we've got to go to our key shareholders and say, you know, we don't want you turning around in three or four or five years' time and saying we don't like this because, you know, you know we LNG is part of the transition. We think of fuels. We think it's part of transition to achieving Paris outcomes. But we want people with us on the way. Mm. So I think we've got to take our bit of responsibility on this as well, Um, but also encourage government to have policies that promote appropriate investment, but also that we get get outcomes that, that frankly, the community wants in terms of uh, CO2 emissions over time as well. Big birthday coming up. Yeah. What's in store for Qantas for the next 10, 15 years? Oh, as, as we said earlier, it's a and it's an iconic brand. It's a much more resilient and better business than it was ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Alan Joyce and and my predecessor as chairman Lee Clifford have done you know a phenomenal job in building that resilience. I think Sunrise, you know, it's we're not over the line on Sunrise. So what's Sunrise? Sunrise right? is sort of direct flights from the east coast of Australia into New York and London, but also into other faraway ports. Yeah. Um, Sunrise, we're not over the line. It's high risk. Because, is, it, is it high risk or is it? Yeah, no, it's high risk because you, know, you just see with coronavirus and other things like that, the impact that can come to the airline industry. Mm. So we've got to make sure the cost base is right mm-hmm. uh, to do it. Uh, but I think if we can, it would give us a real sustainable strategic advantage. I don't think too many others would be able to replicate what we can do. And our experience with Perth, London is passengers love it. And so I think that's important. We'll obviously continue to diversify earnings through Qantas loyalty. You know, Qantas is is often in the headlines um, when little things happen, but you step back and say, gee, Qantas does a great job. It's a a brilliant airline, Qantas Jetstar, all the intrastate airlines as well with high reliability of, extraordinary focus on safety and then when the nation needs it in bushfires you know Qantas has been there helping out flying thousands of people around the country um, to firefighters and things like that and also three emergency flights two from China and one from Japan to bring Australians back home which is what we do so we'll continue to build on that because I think that's important to take appropriate steps to, to grow the business. As a chair, you must be worried about cyber attacks, terrorism as well, I guess, when you yeah. what you're exposed to in both oil and gas and you know, and flight. Yeah. What is in place? Well, a lot, and it does take more time now at board level understanding what risks are and how you're mitigating those risks. The problem with cyber is you, know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Uh, that's always a place where you don't want to be. You know, if you're a bit of a control freak like me, you, you sort of want to understand things. And and cyber is one of those ones where, you know, you're continually being um, forced to react and build a capability. But it, both organisations are being proactive, need to be proactive because, you know, the safety is the number one focus in, in both mm. businesses. You know, we're employing great people. And there's, there's an area where there's incredibly good cooperation between governments, government and businesses like Qantas and Woodside on on security and even the AFL on security and cyber and things like that. So, yeah, it's just a big focus. AFL, congratulations, a great job you've got. (laughs) What are we in store for for the next few years in AFL? AFL, 
The power of AFL is the community. Mm. So is that, why, is that why you took it? You know, I've played football since I could walk, I reckon. Um, okay. So passionate about AFL footy. I, if I was as good at football in my <laughs> dreams, I would have been a champion. But uh, I was, were you a full yeah, forward or what were no, you? No, ordinary. I was a full forward once until, yeah, yeah which is a bit soft, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I love Australian fo- fo- football. Fortunately, my wife and family do as well because, you know, we get to a lot of, a lot of games, but, but we love it. I, I told the story at the grand final the year before last. I'll, I'll tell it very, really mm. quickly. In 2018, uh, Janine and I had a car to move from Perth to Melbourne. So we decided we'd drive across the Nullarbor. Oh, wow. And we did it in five days. But on that drive from Perth to Kalgoorlie and then from Sejuna to, I'll get these wrong, but um, Port Augusta and Port Augusta to Mildura, Mildura into Melbourne. You go into these country towns. Yep. The banks have gone. The churches have gone, the shire offices have gone, you know, the, the major sort of stores have gone. Yeah, so. The one constant is the football level. Yeah. And even if the town now doesn't have a team, a combined team, the football level is still watered and mowed, the goals are up, and, you know, you get netball courts and tennis courts alongside. Yeah. But the centre of these communities now is is sport and more often than not, is AFL football. Yep. And so that community thing is really important. So, you know, and, and that's the power of Australian rules football because people love the elite game, men's and women's elite game. We're getting more people coming and watching. The talent is unbelievable. But the power is now 600,000 girls and women playing the game across the country. Yeah. And that sort of engagement and so people just love Australian football. So, you know, I think um, it's an area that governments are starting to understand actually is that, you know, we are such a big part of community now that investing in infrastructure to support AFL and other sports, yeah. we won't go to sports for us, but actually in, in, in communities is a really good thing to do because it brings communities together. Are we spending enough in the grassroots? Uh, you could always spend more. Um We've announced a pretty significant spend into Victoria because yes. we felt that was really needed this year and that's gone down really well. And football, we're going to be able to do it because football's in strong financial in strong financial shape. And, you know, it sort of gets back to one of my theories I talked earlier about the foundation of listed companies yep. as financial performance. One of my aims and that of Gil McLaughlin, the CEO at the AFL, has been to build a balance sheet in the AFL so that we then have the capacity to reinvest in into the game, into community, into facilities. And if you don't have that capacity, then you're at risk of decline. And I think one of the reasons Australian football is going so well is because of that. And even in places like the Gold Coast, you know, we've got participation <clears throat> is growing immensely, which is great. What's the long-term play with the likes of China? Uh, well, this year we'll have to make a decision soon on whether the, the scheduled game between Port Adelaide and St Kilda happens mm. um, because of coronavirus. But, uh, but if that wasn't in play? Yeah, no, we think there is a future. So Port Adelaide's invested a lot of time, David Koch and others have invested a lot of time into building relationships in China and with the Chinese. And, you know, from year one, which was... Uh, challenge, you know, this thing now has some real momentum and it's interesting. You know, after the election 
last year, the sports minister within two days, I think, had a visa to come to China to watch the AFL game at a time when there was some tension between the two governments. Yeah, absolutely. So it's bigger than AFL footy, but the, the audiences we've had watching that Chinese game in China have been... Unbelievable. So, yeah, we're we're pretty optimistic about um, the future of of the relationship with China and the indigenous. Oh, it's huge. It's um, nearly ten percent of our players. It's not that many, is it? Yeah, my hero growing up was a guy called Sid Jackson, who was an Aboriginal player for East Perth, and then went yeah. to Carlton. Yeah, some of the most talented players in the AFL, Wanganeens, etc. Oh, some of the best. Yeah. Jeff Farmer. Yeah. Then you look at what it's doing in the Northern Territory and the Tiwi Islands, in the Kimberley in West Australia, but also in places like Shepparton with things like the Rumbalara Football and Netball Club. It's a big part, I think, of improving the lot of Indigenous Australians as well, and we're really committed to that. And you've got a passion for the Indigenous in general? Yeah, I have. I said earlier I grew up and was born mm. in Tambalup. So Tambalup was a small place. When I was at school, 220 kids, probably 60 or 70 at the time, were Indigenous. Right, okay. They would roll up at school summer, winter, in a pair of shorts, a T-shirt, no shoes, every day. Yeah, wow. They lived outside of town on a reserve. Now, this is- It's not that long ago, is it? Not that long ago. This is 1960s. Yeah, right. 70s, which were corrugated iron lean-tos, no running water, no power. And racism wasn't below the surface. Racism was- Abundant. Abundant. Yeah, you're right. And I sort of look back on that as a child growing th- up through that. And, you know, I think. Was your parents racist? No, I was going to say to my father, mum, and dad's great credit, dad employed Aboriginal people from time to time to come on the farm and was very, I would say at the time, tolerant, which was in contrast to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so that was good for me growing up in that. But I look back on that time without any pride, <laughs> yeah, the opposite of that. And so at West Farmers and now the AFL, I, I felt we could do something. At West Farmers, it was employing Indigenous people. In the AFL, it's what we just talked about. And, you know, Australia's on a good journey on this front. There's more to go. The Adam Good stuff just shows that there's still a, an intolerance just below the surface some in, in some places. But I think we're on a pretty good journey. Do you think we're asking tough enough questions? Because uh, if you go to some of these communities, you know some of these people have been badly hurt at very young ages, et cetera, and are damaged. Oh, one of the problems, frankly, is I did a um, trip up to the Kimberley with Jarwin, which is this group that works with corporations and um, – and you become an instant expert after two or three days oh, right, visiting yeah. you know, remote communities and you see the issues around alcohol and fetal alcohol syndrome and all those sort of things. And then you come back to the comfort of your home in the western suburbs of Perth. And so it's actually easy to forget the challenges and dealing with them are difficult. I think we are asking the right questions. I think Ken Wyatt yeah. is a great you know, appointment as... In that ministry, I think people like Ben White, who's treasurer in Western Australia, you know, I think we've got great role models and and a focus on getting things right. It'll take longer than I might like, but I do think we're on the right track, but I think we've got to challenge ourselves. And more than once a year, you know, my comment about you become an expert and then you come home, you know, we have an update on the closing the gap once a year in the parliament and almost inevitably we say we're not going, doing enough. Well, 
how do we make sure that this actually has the focus to achieve the outcomes we all want? comes down to leadership. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that. What is leadership to you? Uh, leadership is leading. You know, so I've often said, if you want to be a leader, lead. And so that is being prepared to make decisions and live with the consequences of your decisions. And I think sometimes we have a lack of leadership because people look for consensus. And I think some of our best leaders have been leaders who've said, the right thing to do is this, and I'm going to build a consensus behind that rather than seek it up front. Yeah, right, okay. And there are consequences. You know, Jeff Kennett's a great example. You know, I I would argue Jeff Kennett is one of the most – achieved more than most state premiers in a reasonably limited time frame because he got booted out. Yeah. But Jeff was prepared to make decisions. He was prepared to lead and where the consequences of that. But the consequences for Victoria over many years, I think, have been really positive because of of the leadership he showed. And there's – Lots of other examples. Margaret Thatcher, you know, <laughs> there are consequences, yeah. um, and not everyone's going to support you. and And sometimes you make a bad call, and there are you know serious consequences. But as a leader, I think you have to lead. Did you toss it up considering a career in politics? Oh, early on, I did. Yeah. Early on, I wanted to do it, and thank God uh, that didn't happen for the country. And uh, <laughs> how close uh, were you? Uh, I was, you know, I'm I'm still fascinated by the whole politics thing, but. You know, one of the things in business and particularly CEO is you start getting your own way <laughs> a bit and you can make decisions and if someone's not performing, you can deal with that. And politics is the art of persuasion. It's the art of compromise. And the longer you're in business, I think the worse you get, <laughs> the worse you get at that. So um, I think I would find it terribly frustrating and I'm full of admiration for, you know, politicians who – and there are plenty who I think do a good job working within an environment that is, you know, challenging to get outcomes. Fair enough. You mentioned uh, you had a mentor. Yeah, a guy how, called. How important is mentors? Yeah, for me it was great. So a guy called Chris Bartlett, who was professor of Harvard Business School, Australian Queensland. I think he wrote King's Cup for Queensland, uh, and he worked in business before going to Harvard Business School. And um, so Chris and I would religiously talk every two weeks. At, if not face to face, is based in Sydney and in um, in Vermont. And what period of time was this from, Richard? Pretty much the whole time I was CEO of West Farm. So, so did you have a mentor years. up to that point, or did you brought no, him in then? No, it, he and I had a conversation. I think just before I took over, and he offered to to do this, and and so we did it, and it was fantastic. So Chris would say, Richard, more often than not, I was holding up a mirror. But he was the one person I could talk to completely openly about what I was facing into. You know, so Janine, my wife, she and I have a wonderful relationship. But there's some stuff I didn't ever want to burden her with. I had three wonderful chairs at West Farmers, Trevor Eastwood, Bob Avery and Michael Cheney. But again, with the chair, you, you know, there's the relationship that has to be respected. So Chris was the one person I could say, gee, Chris, I'm having an issue with this person. And he he wouldn't say, well, deal with it. He'd, he'd push back and say, well, why? What what issues? Or I'm thinking about this or I'm thinking about that. And it was just a, an ability to have a sounding board with a very, very smart person. Or I'm giving a speech. How about you read through my speech and this, what are you trying to achieve, all that sort of stuff. So Chris is a great friend now and um, was, I think, really valuable to me um, and made me a, a better CEO because he – 
gave me the opportunity to step back and reflect on where I was and what I needed to do from time to time. Well, you've got fresh eyes in the boardroom now. What skills would you like or what competencies would you think we need more of? I think it's, the world's more complex. So going to some of your earlier questions, this whole digital revolution where that's going, I think it's going to impact every business. And so understanding implications of that, I think, disruptors, cyber, the whole, I think that's important. I think people who've had experience and some failures are, are important as well. Uh, I always I look for people who I would define as commercial, who can understand implications of decisions because, you know, you're making decisions around capital management, capital expenditure. There's a whole lot of things you do as a board. So you want people who've got some comprehension of that. You also want people who are prepared to put their case. You know, one yeah. of the, there's a director at Qantas who I've got a very high opinion of who sometimes will just put an alternative scenario out there to make sure we discuss and debate it. And more often than not, you get a better outcome. Even if that's not what you end up doing, you you end up with a with a better outcome. So uh, there's a, I think, true diversity. Um, well, what is that to you? It's my, way more than gender. Gender is yep. a big part of it, but yep. it's it's diversity of thought. <laughs> and a, but but people who are prepared to listen understanding that share of voice is not the main criteria around a board table. In other words, you don't have to say anything if there's nothing to say. But when there is something to say, you say it and you say it in a way that people listen. So the the best directors are the ones when everyone else just quiets down because they know that this person's got something valuable to say. What's been the greatest achievement thus far? Oh, surviving. Uh And that's no mean feat, is it? Yeah, no. Um, you know, I'm a farm boy from country WA and I scratch my head and think, gee, you know, was I ever good enough to do this? Was I? So, you know, being South West Farmers, you know, people said congratulations when I was appointed. I said, don't congratulate me now. Congratulate me at the end if I've done a reasonable job, you know, because <laughs> this could go... Anyway, so I, I would like to think that the reputation of West Farmers over my time, which was high when I started, was was enhanced. Yeah. I had an amazing experience with the B20 in 2014 when the government asked me to lead that with the G20. So that was an opportunity to work with global leaders. And How interesting was that? It was fascinating. It was, ama- you know, it was great. It was so much fun. And, you know, meeting... President Obama and mm. leaders, of, you know, that, that sort of stuff was nice to do as well. But, you know, I worked really closely with Joe Hockey, who's been, I think, unfairly maligned as treasurer. Um, Tony Abbott, who's, you know, people can say what they like. Tony Abbott's a really great guy. Yeah. Uh, before them, Julia Gillard and Wayne Swan and equally, you know. So I got to work with good people but really impressive business leaders like Kerry Stokes and um, – Gal Kelly and yeah. a whole lot of others. So that that was great fun. So they're probably, but you know, um, the journey's continuing. You know, I'm I'm one thing is I'm ambitious. So you know, hopefully in ten years' time, people say that organisations I've been involved in have made good decisions and are, are good corporate citizens. And the AFL goes from strength to strength, and 
other things on, you know, my wife, Janine, and I are passionate. I tell you the one thing we would love more than anything else in the world. Our youngest, Will's type 1 diabetic. He's 21. He's diagnosed an eight-year-old. We're involved in raising money for research into type yeah. 1 diabetes. And so we'd, we'd actually change everything out just to get a cure for type 1 diabetes. So there's yeah. a few things we're going to keep working on and and hopefully the, the best is yet to come. What do you reckon made you stand out then, Richard? Oh, I don't think I have. No, you said, like, well, you know, you're the country boy, as you say, and yeah. from a small from a small school, you get a couple of breaks, but you've got to put yourself in that position to get the breaks. So uh, what is it? What's what's? Is it just the yeah, thinking? Is it? I think calmness, a, or what is it? A track record helps. So in tube makers, I before West Farmers, I had I think eleven jobs or ten jobs in eleven years or something like that. Someone so you, said, and you put your hand up for it. Is yeah, what? yeah. I was always ambitious, and someone once said they'll find something you can do one day. <laughs> West Farmers are probably the rural division. Yeah, we turned what was called perennially called the underperforming rural division into a business that made an acceptable return on capital and a business we could grow, and we ultimately sold it for close to a billion dollars. And I think that track record and working with people, so, you know, I I would think on balance I've made good decisions around people and on balance I've been able to work with people to get good outcomes and I'm commercial in the way I think about things. So those things help and... One of my reflections in working with other people is that not everyone can make decisions. And I said earlier, leaders lead. Not everyone likes doing that. And I do like doing that. I like making decisions and I like leading. And a lot of people don't like doing that. So you can handle the criticism. You wear that as part of the the deal. Yeah. Personal criticism, you know, when I say it doesn't worry me, doesn't overly worry me. You know, you never like it. That's why... I'm a bit protective of politicians because I think they they get criticised and most actually work really hard to get good outcomes. What what I really didn't like was criticism of the organisation so that I fronted. Uh, you know that's that's what churns my my guts still does. But you do have to become resilient too. Well, it's been a tremendous yes. career. I ask if you were to look back at the young Richard on, on that farm many years ago in WA, what advice would you give him? Believe it or not, I'd tell him to take more risk. Now, if that's not... That's coming from yeah, the West Farmers CEO. Yeah, but it, but a different sort of risk. So, you know, we've got four children and later this year there'll be, I think, probably one in London, one in Vancouver, one in New York and one in Melbourne. I took my career a bit too seriously as a young person and you know, in hindsight, Janine, I should have gone off to New York or London for a few years and done that. And I was too worried about my career at the time. So that that sort of risk, which I'm yeah, you know, be prepared to do now, frankly. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I'd, so that I think, yeah, that sort of thing. I putting yourself forward. So I'm you know, on the old Myers Briggs thing, I'm an ENTP, but I'm a very low E, which is between extrovert and introvert. And one of the things I've had to do as CEO is get myself out there. Always confident? Yeah, always self-confident, Yeah, but not necessarily totally confident, you know, with people. And so I've had to work on that. So the, I'd tell the young Richard Goyder to work on that earlier. Mm-hmm. I'd tell the young Richard Goyder to do debating at school because thinking on your feet and having the right words is – and I'd tell the young Richard Goyder to, notwithstanding all the hard time he would have got, actually study music and things like that as well to broaden what you're doing and – 
So they'd be the things. And does Richard Goyd have a lot of fun along the way? Yeah, he's had an enormous amount of fun. And yeah, people say to me now, you're busy. Yeah, I am, but not compared to when I was CEO. It's all relative. But I wouldn't be doing any of this unless I was having great fun and I'm having great fun. On that, Richard, thank you very much for joining us today on No Limitations. Thanks very much. You've been listening to No Limitations. 